RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Simon Elmer was born and lives in London. In 2002, he received his PhD in the History and Theory of Art from University College London. He's taught at the Universities of London, Manchester, Reading and Michigan. In 2015, he co-founded Architects for Social Housing, for which he is head of research. His many books, well, there's a long list of them and you can look them up. But the one that we uh, want to have a chat to Simon about today is his new book, The Great Reset, Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capital. He joins us from the UK on Reality Check Radio. Simon, thanks for coming on. Great to have you. You're very welcome. Nice to talk with you, Paul. Thanks, Thank you for having me on to Reality Check Radio on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's funny and <laughs> incredible how it works, isn't it? Eh? Yeah. Um, okay, so The Great Reset, that's uh, Klaus Schwab's term originally isn't it for his book yeah it's a it's a funny term because i guess right into way into 2020 anyone who mentioned the great reset was denounced as a conspiracy theorist you know there isn't a kind of an official definition on the wikipedia page um and if you go onto any uh any footage on youtube uh, anyone who mentions the great reset there's a kind of a warning sign underneath which is in a blue panel in which they quote from this wikipedia thing and they describe it as something which is a kind of a reaction, an economic plan to build back better from lockdown. Oh, that's that's the um, other thing we've heard a lot, even from our politicians locally, build back better. Yes, they had all these kind of terms ready very quickly, didn't they? But and you know, anyone was denounced as a conspiracy theorist for sort of mentioning this. Um, but then it kind of emerged that Klaus Schwab had published a book called The Great Reset in June 2020. So within three months of the lockdown being announced. And in fact, as a, as a programme, um, not just of the the World Economic Forum, but of a lot of um, a lot of other these kind of transnational um, technocracies. The term has been around for a very long time. So this is my sort of third or fourth book around what's been happening over the last four years, and I just knew it had to be about the Great Reset. The primary thesis of it is that when lockdown um, regulations in this country and across the West, um, in this country we had five hundred eighty-two coronavirus justified regulations 537 of them were brought into effect even before they were presented to parliament and of course we had the coronavirus act 2020 these were largely revoked in march 2022 so exactly two years after the lockdown and i think a lot of people understandably were relieved that this was over and we could all go back to this new normal i don't believe that and i don't think anyone else who really follows this believes that now um my book is the thesis is that that was the first phase of the great reset and the second phase began, I guess, with the proxy war in the Ukraine and has been continuing since then. And what the book is about is trying to understand how we shifted out of a, a kind of a legal legislative framework in which we were governed through those first two years under lockdown into a different framework. And the framework that I think we're in is a biopolitical one. Hence the subtitle of my book, Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capitalism. That's another term that um, we've heard a lot, stakeholder capitalism. And I think that might be a Klaus Schwab or WEF term again, correct me if I'm wrong. What does that actually, well, on the surface, I kind of get what it means, but what does it actually mean? (laughs) Well, funnily enough, Klaus Schwab's latest book is called Stakeholder Capitalism. (laughs) I haven't read it yet, but I've I've kind of had a look at it. His books are pretty poor. They're the sort of thing you read in an airport on the way to your business meeting. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's let's go back a little bit. Um, the the Great Reset didn't begin in March 2020. It didn't begin with lockdown. It began before that. In September 2019, there was the second global financial crisis, 
um, in 12 years since the 2007 one. Um, and between in those six months, between September 2019 and April 2020, the US Federal Reserve Bank, the European Bank, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of China, so the biggest bank, central banks in the world, they created about $12 trillion in quantitative easing to bail up, to buy up failing financial assets. Now, as a result of that, or partly as a result of this financial crisis, of the 10 largest national economies in the world, so we've got US, China, Japan, Germany, the UK, India, France, Russia, Italy, and Brazil, they produce $67 trillion of GDP. That's two thirds of the global GDP, right? So they dominate the world. However, as of October 2023, so last month, the collective debt of those 10 countries is $81.5 trillion. Yes. So there's a public debt to GDP ratio of 121%. Um, you probably won't be surprised to hear that Russia is the odd one out in that list. No, we're not Their surprised debt- to hear that. We've been, <laughs> we have been hearing that. Yeah, yeah. Their debt is only for only $428 billion. That's an eighth of Germany, UK, India, France, and Italy. That sounds and- manageable. That definitely sounds manageable, doesn't it? Especially when you're sitting on some of the biggest oil and petroleum reserves in the world. Yeah. The US, this is the key one. The US has a debt of $33 trillion in rising. That's 77 yep. times that of Russia. Now, also what is important, this is, I think this is very important in terms of what the Great Reset is. The external debt to GDP ratio, that is what the country owes, the government owes, the state owes, not to its own citizens, but to foreign uh, countries, of the US is 89.5%. Now, in comparison, the external debt to GDP ratio of Russia is only 26.7%, and China, it's less than 18%. Just to make you feel a little bit happier, the UK, our external debt <laughs> ratio is 301%. So That's massive. Yeah, it's massive. So the important point is That's the global financial crisis didn't wasn't a cause of lockdown. Lockdown was an attempt to contain it and to insulate this vast amount of quantitative easing which was pumped into the financial sector from real economies. Um, um, ju- ju- just um, on that, you know, that because you, you're saying a financial crisis of, what, 2019, I think most people were un- people will re- recall the financial crisis of 2008 and Lehman Brothers and all that, yeah. but I think most people aren't aware of this other crisis. It was, yeah. it, it sort of went under the radar for, for a lot of people. I, I, I'm, I'm picking. Yeah, it still is. I mean, I think that's what's very interesting. Well, that's one of the things that's interesting about it. Every year or every half year, the masters of the universe who've elected themselves to form this world government, they gather in Davos at the World Economic Forum, and they talk about every crisis under the world. They talk about the environmental crisis, the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis, the the crisis with Russia, now the crisis um, with what's going on in Gaza and Israel. But they never talk about the big crisis, which is the financial crisis. And it's always what these people don't talk about that we should be attending to. So to try and answer your question, the Great Reset is is kind of a shift. It's a historical shift out of neoliberal capitalism. That is the economic, political and social paradigm by which we've been governed in the West and most of the rest of the world over the last 40 years into this new term, stakeholder capitalism. Now, I believe stakeholder capitalism is the emerging political economy of the West. It's one of the things it's doing is it's merging what were previously the separation of powers between the executive, legislature, and judiciary. So the government, uh, the in this in this country, the parliament, and the legal service, and that's kind of the basis, at least in principle, on which Western democracy has been founded. Yes, separation of powers as yeah. checks and balances that yeah. stop us. 
and we saw that they completely failed to defend our human rights and so on under under lockdown. But th- that is that is being done away with. We're going into something else. Now, I think this merger represents a revolution from shareholder capitalism, that is, in which economies overseen by national governments will run for the benefit of company shareholders into a global economy, which is governed by those companies. So when they say it's stakeholder capitalism, the stake in which these companies have an investment is the world itself. That is its land, its natural resources, its agriculture, its livestock, and also its human capital. That's that's Mm. kind of the key thing. So we're moving into a kind of a technocratic form of governance in which these transnational technocracies, and you know, we can talk about those, are run by uh, global corporations, by central banks, and to a certain extent by bureaucratic representatives of national economies. So that's briefly what stakeholder capitalism is about. So, so like a kind of merger of of all those things, and and is that to is that the reset? So what what yeah. happens to then legacy debt and all of all of that? Is that what's that reset into? <clears throat> <laughs> yes, economically it's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I believe everything everything that's happened over the last four years, everything is kind of unbelievable. Um, mm. Locking down economies for two years, denying medical care to billions and billions of people with a huge impact that's having. Masking mandates, uh, vaccine mandates or gene therapy mandates programs. Yeah. Um, the, the proxy war in the Ukraine. And what is going on now in Gaza? I think this all can be, it can't be explained, but it has to be seen within the context of this enormous crisis within, I think, global finance, but particularly Western capitalism. Because as I've just shown through those figures, uh, even though there's a kind of a, there is a, a global financial crisis, which is ongoing, the, the, the burden of it is borne by the West and particularly the USA. And that, that impacts on all of us as we're seeing, because the US may be declining as an economic power, but its military power over the world is 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 immense. Yeah, though some might argue that's declining as well, given the woke state of their military, if we can believe that or not. <laughs> yeah, the Russians so. have been nominated as the most powerful military now. I'm really interested in um, the, uh, the peace parts of the proxy war and now Gaza-Israel. Um, mm-hmm. I've always... And I'm sure our listeners have always felt that, especially the Ukraine war, what was part of it. Where does that fit in? Well, I think last time I looked, the figures, the latest figures only go up to June of this year. But I I think the the investment, which what Western powers called aid being put into Ukraine, but it's investment in um, was something like I think it was about three hundred and fifty billion from the West has been invested in that country, um, which is a lot of money, particularly given the kind of the economic, um, I guess, depression or recession probably that we're in in the West. Um, that money is now being used to rebuild, so, so-called, so from the, the, the kind of the carnage which has been inflicted on the country through this, this proxy war with Russia. Um, and as we know, the people who are managing that money are U.S. asset managers, Primary of monks, which is is BlackRock, but also uh, Morgan Stanley and so on and so forth. Um, the they're very open about what they're doing there. They're restructuring the country on a kind of a digital platform. So their civil service is going to turn into uh, smartphone apps. The government is going to be run by so-called e-government, as is e-commerce. Um, Zelensky himself was already outlawed 
um, any kind of union action. Mm. He's um, he's taken over the media and the press, so he's got a single government issue. I think it's sure. I think Ukraine is a kind of a a warning, a very bloody one. Is it a, like a training? System yes, I think it's, it? it is a training ground, isn't it? You know, the West likes to kind of try out its its kind of dystopias on smaller countries, if you like. Yeah, and they are rebuilding it that way. They've even got a kind of an AI system which is going to work on their uh, their legal system. So uh, AI is going to judge whether an offender may be, you know, um, uh, li- liable to reoffend and stuff. So yeah. I think I think the Ukraine is a model of of this new society, which is going to that is this stakeholder capitalism. Because remember, I said stakeholder capitalism is a political economy, so it's not merely in economics; it's also a politics as well. And I think mm-hmm. it's a kind of a testing ground of what happens when countries are run not by elected governments, which are subject to this division of powers, but are ruled by transnational technocracies. And that's where we get into things like, which is the kind of the, the sub-subject of my book, which is this idea of biopolitics. Biopolitics mm. is different from the politics of, um, you know, that we've lived under for a long, a long time now, the politics of a flawed, but in principle, a democracy in which you have this division of powers. Biopower overruns all of that. Um, Ukraine has suffered a huge population decrease, people moving out of Ukraine, but also a very high uh, casualty rate from the war, and they are fighting age men mostly. Is that that part of a reset too? You've got to kind of clean out what could be an opposition before you sort of go full on. Because we have to explain that Mm. terrible loss because – it, it was well predicted yeah. Um, yeah. somehow. Otherwise, it's uh, I mean, because it's a terrible thing. It's also the, the apart from the nobody really knows yet at the moment the number of the number of people who have died both in the military, um, in which people were drafted in obviously against their will, but also the kind of and, and civilian casualties as well. But also the flight out of the country as well. There's been a mm. huge exodus as well. I mean, obviously, a country is going to be easier to govern under these. Uh, under these kind of autocratic measures, or that's not really the right word for them, if there are less people in the country. But at the same time, you know, in the West, places like Ireland, for instance, but also in the UK, we've got this huge influx of immigrants into the countries as well, which is, you know, primary policy. I've just written an article about that, about what's the, what, what is the political function of this immigration. Um, there, yeah, I, 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 what is the purpose of that? I mean, perhaps it is simply collateral damage in fighting a war in someone else's country. You know, the US US asset managers have sent um, US soldiers to fight in countries across the Middle East and across the world and have been happy to sacrifice their lives um, and their families and so on for their ends. I think this is a new kind of war in a sense, in in the sense that the war is being fought not by US soldiers, but by the soldiers of other foreign countries as well. Yeah. Um, And I think that might set a kind of a template for future wars as well. It's like an outsourcing sort of yeah of yeah yeah it's exactly that actually it's a good that's a good analogy I mean by if we think about it, the US has got two strike two carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean at the moment they're not there to inflict even more casualties on the people of the Gaza Strip you'd have to think that's in preparation for a war in Iran which they've been uh, they've been kind of trying to pick for a long time haven't they mm. um, how will they fight that. Uh, well, they, well, they don't the seem to win many wars, Simon. This is the thing. There's <laughs> a lot of engagement, and uh, but but they don't seem to win. Well, <clears throat> they they're not going to get the Donbass, are they? In the eastern the eastern regions of the Ukraine, um, but they certainly are going to defend their investments in the rest of the Ukraine. I should think. 
Um, I, th I think the kind of the geopolitics that the US and the West in general is interested in is not conquest. It's it's you know it's like the British Empire. We didn't need an army to conquer the world. We just had to have a good set of um, bureaucrats who knew yeah. how to run economies. Yeah, and I think that's what the US is trying to do. The technocracies involved, we're um, familiar with, um, you know, the WHO. In fact, one of the debates that's taking off here now or the um, the awareness that's growing is the international health regulations that are all the amendments to those, 305 of them or something, and the compressed time frame to react to them if you're a nation state like us, which really doesn't give anyone any time to kind of go through them in any detail. And then there's the... Um, the um, One Health, you know, um, uh, health passport um, being talked about as well. So we know about WHO, and one of our guys as former Director General of Health here is one of the top guys there now, so that's quite embarrassing for us. There's the World Economic Forum, obviously, WEF. Um, people are aware of that. Not many people, I think, out there are aware, aware of the Bank for International Settlements. Yeah. And we've heard of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, these... Yeah. These are all, these are all linked, right? They're all sort of piece parts yeah. of a of a bigger picture. Yeah, they are, they are all interlinked. Um, the Bank of International Settlements is the central bank for the other sixty three central banks in the world. Um, it's a, it's an organisation I don't think I was aware of until you know fairly recently, fairly the last few years, um, and it's been the prime mover behind this drive towards central bank digital currencies, which a lot of my book is about. Um, organizations like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which produces these reports, um, which argues that we're facing global boiling now, isn't it? It's not just global warming, it's global yep. boiling. That's yep. a kind of a, that's a subsidiary agency of the United Nations. Um, and so is the World Health Organization as well. Uh, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, I think the best way to think of that is that it's a kind of a think tank, a global think tank for Western capitalism. To a certain mm. extent global, but it's dominated by uh, Western CEOs and so on. The interesting thing about these these four is that they're all implementing what I call new apparatuses of bio biopower, and half my book is about talking about those. So, yeah, can you define biopower? I think it'd be a good time to <laughs> yeah. to define that. I think I know okay. what it means, but what's the strict thank, thank, thanks for that, Paul? I'll, I'll give it a go. It's it's one of those things you have to write about a lot. Okay, biopower. I said before that under lockdown, we were ruled, certainly in this country and I guess across the West, by this huge wave of legislation, regulations, statutory instruments, and primary legislation, acts of parliament. Now, laws act by, they set limits on what one can do. And if you cross those limits, there are punishments for it. They can be fines, they can be imprisonment. Once upon a town in the good old days, you could, you know, someone could be sent to death. Um, they, but they were punitive, if you like. Yeah, they said what you cannot do. Now, biopower which has been around for, I don't know, at least since the 17th century, but it's becoming more dominant as a paradigm of governments. It incorporates those legal frameworks to citizenship into regulatory apparatuses. And they determine not what you must not do, but what you must do. Uh, In other words, they are centered not on um, you know, punitive measures, but actually governing what life has to be. So they regulate, they hierarchize, they, they survey um, they correct and they punish um, our actions in life. Now, the four apparatuses of biopower that we're facing at the moment, and these these apparatuses, their discourses around them, so the discourse of um, climate change, 
They are the institutions formulating them. They're the programs which are implementing them. And they've also got a legislative basis as well. They're the agendas, as you just said, with the, uh, the pandemic treaty. Um, the, the four that I focused on, I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse because mm. they are so dangerous and they can completely change our world. The first one is digital identity. Yeah. Over here, the European Union launched a digital identity system in, I think it was June of this year. Um, obviously, it was continuing on from things like the vaccine passports under lockdown. And they did it in in collaboration with the World Econo- World Econo- sorry, the World Health Organization. Yeah. Now, this month, the European Parliament and Council agreed to it. So it is going to be launched. Oh, dear. Now, I think digital identity is the gateway into all the others. So you can't do this. Account. You can't carry out this dastardly plan without an infrastructure, yeah. a digital, I, that's where, it, that, yeah. that's the bottom line, right? The, it's the gateway. None of the others, the thing is all four of these are interdependent upon each other for their implementation. Mm. That's why I've, I've grouped them together. And digital identity has to be resisted. It hasn't been resisted enough because I don't think m- many people realize exactly what it is. It's not simply a cards, please. It's, it's much more than that. Yeah. The next three is the United Nations Agenda 2030 and 2050. Now, this has been around for quite a long time, but it's kind of upped its implementation. So things like 15-minute cities. In London, where I'm based, London, UK, um, the entire city now is um, is under surveillance by ULES cameras, that is, ultra-low emission zones. Uh, they're ostensibly there to make sure that cars are compliant with emission uh, criteria, but they've actually turned London into a kind of a surveillance state. So that was just were... the, the thin end of the wedge to, to kind yeah, of yeah, create yeah. a... a, a, a... Something that people could buy is yeah, that sounds reasonable yeah. to well, get people haven't to people get haven't really sold. bought it, but they've gone ahead and done it anyway. Uh, okay, but it's not yeah. like we intend to surveil you twenty four seven all the time, um, not no, just on traffic. It's not, it hasn't been sold. They, like they definitely that. didn't push it that way. No, and the sort of um, the sort of restrictions on our consumptions, the limitations on the use of cars, of heating, of energy, of oil, of dairy products, and so on and so forth. The various organizations which are um, coming up with statistics on re- on the degrees of reduction in consumptions, which are going to be required to meet what I think are completely chimerical um, uh, deadlines, if you like, of 2013, 2050. These are all going to be justified by um, this, this kind of di- discourse of environmental crisis, but they're going to be implemented by this infrastructure of surveillance and so on. The other one, is, of course, is the one you mentioned, the World Health Organization's Pandemic Treaty which is one of the most <laughs> lunatic documents I think I've ever read. And I've read quite a lot of strange ones over the last few <laughs> years. Um, it, it, it gives an enormous amount of power to the World Health Organization, which of course is a, it's a, it's a technocracy. It's not elected. It's subject to enormous amount of lobbying from primarily from the US, but also and from, funding and mm. funding. Yeah. From things like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation and other asset managers and so on. And the fourth one, the final one, which is really, if, if digital identity is the gateway into this sort of digital camp in which we're going to live, that is a camp which is coextensive with the space of the state itself. Central bank digital currency really is the, it's the kind of the border fence and it's, you won't be able to go beyond it. Central yeah, bank because digital that, currency. That controls, that, that ultimately is the behavior, behavioral yeah. control lever, isn't it? Because, and it's obvious why that would be if it's programmable and, yes. um, it uh, is programmable. Um, yeah. Of the over here, they they say the government and the Bank of England, which is going to issue it in this country, 
it's not programmable by them, and that's that's true. It's going to be programmable by the the issuers of it. That is going to be um, the world's most powerful um, information technology companies and the banks and so on and so forth like that. And it, it is going to be programmable. I would say that's its primary feature. Hmm. And what that means is that if the central banks don't approve of how you're expressing their liability for your digital for their digital currency, they're going to be able to cut off access to it, or they're going to be able to limit it. So if you drive your car beyond what it was required under the United Nations Agenda 2030, they'll simply switch it off. Yeah. <laughs> or you won't be able to buy petrol or oil because every time you go in and use your digital currency, it will be programmed with restrictions and requirements on your expenditures so this is a this is a system of it's a totalitarian system of complete control it's the digital but prison all four of these works yeah it's a digital prison and all four of these but it's a prison this is my point so i kind of argue in this book i started it in the last book as well there's a there's an italian philosopher called giorgio agamben he's still alive and he's been one of the greatest and most brave critics of lockdown and the whole gene therapy thing hmm. um he's argued that the camp is the paradigm of modern governance. It's the paradigm for the modern state. Um, and we need to think of the camp, not as the camps which were built in you know, China, those kind of vast camps that they built, the kind of quarantine camps, or even the kind of luxury camps that he built in Australia. The camp is going to be the space of the state itself. And within it, we will be under surveillance all the time. And our movements within it are going to be controlled. And we will not be able to live it, leave it unless, of course, you live in some sort of, you know, um, self-sufficient commune, you know, outside its reaches, which is going to be very difficult anywhere in the West. Yeah, maybe in Australia you could do it. I don't know. Even there, probably. Um, yeah. yeah. So these are all these are all interdependent on each other. The point is, they're once they're implemented, our ability to challenge them, say through judicial review, our ability to protest against them. Our ability to vote a different government in which will uh, revoke them is going to be almost non-existent. I would say progressively more impossible. That means we're moving out of a judicial system of governance, which oversees um, like, uh, executive um, power and, and legislative oversight into an apparatus of biopower, which is going to make the body, our movements, our freedom of expression, of speech, of conscience, of thought, um, our labor, everything about us, how we live, what we consume, these are going to be the object of a political strategy. In a proper sense, though, it's actually going to take us out of politics. If we think of politics yeah. as no being based on, yeah, there's a space of contestation, of debate, of, you know, at least in principle, that's all going to go. So we're moving into a kind of a, bio, a, pro, a post-political uh, environment. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that doesn't square too well with how humans are, um, it seems to me. Um, yeah. uh, and with the lack of any sort of, um, you know, legislative fight back, what you've just been talking about there, that really only leaves two ways of doing it. Either you accept it on a big scale or it cuts up very rough and there's some sort of epic confrontation. But yeah. it seems, uh, get your thoughts on that, because from what I can see now, just with the everyday citizen, uh, there's that, you know, frog in the pot thing is happening right now. We're watching it happen right now. Do you think we're equipped um, after how many years, how many decades of uh, a kind of benign stability for Western people anyway to 
reject this in any way? One would hope so, but the last four years have been characterized by almost universal compliance and indeed collaboration. I think we've all been horrified about how many of our, not only our friends individually, individual human beings, but also the institutions, civil institutions, the way they collaborated with what happened under lockdown. And are collaborating now, there is almost no pushback, certainly in this country. There is no pushback very little. Yeah, from, same here. The, from the kind of institutions which are meant to, you know, democracy is meant to be based on this idea of checks and balances, yeah? That governments could never get too powerful, police forces could never become a police state, um, dictators could never emerge, because there are a system of, it's not really a system, but a, a kind of a penumbra of checks and balances which come from civil society. Um, that is, not just from the judiciary or from the legislature, but outside of that. Institutions which guarantee that democracy will survive. Now, under lockdown, they failed completely. In fact, they became, they are continuing to collaborate with the implementation of this global biosecurity state at every level, certainly in this country, I think across the West. So they don't give me hope that there's going to be a kickback of against this. I think the issue of, I agree with you, at least I hope, I, I hope I'm right, I hope we're both right, but this isn't the way that humans work, um, that humans don't work by regimentation. If we look at Totalitarian systems, totalitarian societies, states in the past, they have failed, I think, in a way because of their own internal contradictions. The purpose of totalitarianism, if we listen to someone like Hannah Arendt, the German political philosopher, theory, political theorist who wrote her book, Origins of Totalitarianism, knew a lot about it. She escaped from Nazi Germany. She said the purpose of totalitarian regimes is to render the human being um, redundant to their functioning. And mm. Systems of digital ID, central bank digital currency, and so on, do exactly that. They take away human judgment. That's what um, artificial intelligence is about. How does a human society function? How does it succeed, perhaps, is a better uh, question, when humanity has been taken out of it? I hope I've almost become a new humanist again. I hope that we so, will fight back about this, against this. I do believe, I hope, I've got to believe this, because being... Being not, we have to be an optimist about this, but we also have to be open eyed. I hope we will fight back against it. But at the moment, I don't think there's a framework. It certainly doesn't exist within our parliamentary structures. It doesn't exist in our politics and it doesn't exist within our civil society as well. The framework in which we, these checks and balances have failed, so we have to find new ways. Now, since human beings are radically unmanageable, <laughs> we're radically random. Yeah, uh, we don't like being kept in a camp. Um, freedom of movement is the primary freedom, if you like, and all this is going to be taken away from us. The second part of my book is about how they've done this, how they've managed to push this on us. Hmm. I've called these ideologies of compliance. So how do they get a species, that is the human being, who values its freedom above all other things, also its safety as well, how do they get us to comply with this radical um, attack on our freedoms? Freedom of movement, freedom of conscience, of thought, everything. Our freedom to associate with each other, our human need to be part of a society, to, to, to live with each other, and to have, you know, to have to, to commune with each other, if you like. And <clears throat> the ones I've looked at is woke, uh, the ideology of woke, which is now, I don't think anyone can deny it, it's the official ideology of stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. 
Um, it's authoritarianism, you know, the way it makes censorship is the default response to disagreement. You know, you and I were probably around about the same generation. When we grew up, freedom was a very, very important value for the people of the it, West. It was. Yeah. I don't think that exists now. Safety has become it. And if a thought or a, or a speech or something that is written is considered or designated as a threat to the safety of the individual or a group of people or the safety of the state, censorship is now accepted blanket censorship. And I think that's a really fundamental change between generations, which has been implemented by woke. So I think that's very important. Um, of course, woke, people think woke, I think there's a perception of woke still that it's it's a bunch of kind of overzealous middle-class university students who've kind of got a bit ahead of themselves. That's not what it yeah. is at all. Hmm. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter is a subsidiary of woke, if you like. And I just found out recently that since 2020, Black Lives Matter and uh, similar kind of organizations, activist organizations, have received $83 billion it's incredible, from, corporate, isn't it? from corporate backers. Now, yeah. they're not using that to organize marches around the world in Washington, in you know Auckland, in, in, in London, or anywhere else across the world. That's a vast amount of money. With that, you can write legislation. You can, you can fund institutions to implement it. You can bribe legislatures to pass it. You can have a huge amount of effect. Woke is woke is the it's the means by which stakeholder capitalism, that is, power moving into corporate control, is dismantling our democracies, and it's replacing it with these transnational corporate-led democracies, which we enumerated before, like the WHO and the WF and so on. Um, Another one, I mean, it's incredible how quickly this has become part of uh, the orthodoxy uh, of the West, and that is the orthodoxy of trans or transgenderism. I was going to ask you about that. Where it's a complete Lysenkoism. It's, it's scientifically absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. But it's now become, it's being written into our legislation. Now, I didn't even hear about this until about five years ago. You know, it's yeah. very, very recent. Now it's written into uh, pedagogical structures, into our legislation, it's it's quite extraordinary. It's again, it's not. It's taken something which is seen as uh, a kind of a a very fringe. Um, you know, kind Some of would say weird. fetish, Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Are built around kind of identity dysto- um, dysphoria, dysphoria. So the right mm. word um, dysmorphia. Well, well, they've they've used that. In fact, that's that's been one of the things that um, that at the it was like a gun to the head. You know the dysphoria. Therefore, um, people are very vulnerable. Therefore, if you yeah. aren't with us on this, you know, people might even, you know, take their own lives. It was that yeah. was a high stakes sort of, um, yeah, game there. But it's it goes. It's what I just said. It goes back to that idea that if your if your disagreement with this can be harmful to someone, you can therefore justify censorship. All these ideologies are around justifying censorship, and more than censorship actually, you know, taking control of the institutions by which we meet consensus about anything, about science, about medicine and so forth. These have been taken over by woke. Um, the other one, of course, is the tenets of inv- what I call environmental fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Like all vi- fundamentalisms, it's built on unquestionable um, assertions, which any challenge to them is denounced now as conspiracy theory, even though there is nothing like a scientific consensus on what on on, no. uh, you know, on on this environmental crisis. It is a form of fundamentalism. 
it's being very adept at using youthful activist groups which have vast funding from play organizations like like BlackRock and these kind of corporate asset managers. Um, but what it's actually trying to they're, do... They're like the foot soldiers, Simon. They're the foot yeah, soldiers. Yeah. yeah. And they've been terrified. You know, they kind of get up in front of their, their iPhones and stuff and say, you know, we're terrified for the future. And, you know, I kind of believe them. They are. They've been indoctrinated into this. Mm-hmm. But what they don't seem to be aware of is that something like Agenda 2030, like, and its subsidiary kind of um, implementation, things like sustainable development goals, um, environmental, social, corporate governance criteria, these are all working to fan- financialize global resources. They're actually doing exactly what these environmentalists are actually complaining about, right. including agriculture, livestock, and humans, and so on. So the tenets of environmental fundamentalism are, again, the ideology of stakeholder capitalism. They're the means by which corporations, global corporations, are taking power into their own hands. And I would say the last, well, not the last, but the other very characteristic, uh, something characteristic of these ideologies of compliance is this mm. process of dehumanization. Like we've seen this um, most immediately with the dehumanization of the populations of non-compliant countries. That is not compliant with, I guess, what we call the Western rules-based order. Yeah. And that is countries like Russia, now it's Palestine. It will undoubtedly be Iran. Yeah, um, there's uh, open racism, actually. Yeah, it's um, come back. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, towards, yeah. And one day it'll be China as well. It already is in a little way. But it's also about the dehumanization of the non-compliant members uh, of the populations of compliant countries. And we saw that. We, see, we, we This is an ongoing process. So anyone who disagreed, as I'm sure you did as well, we were called anti-COVID. We were called anti-vax. We were called anti-Semitic. Uh, we were called far-right conspiracy theorists. When the war in um, in Ukraine happened, we were then called Putin apologists. Now, if we're against um, the genocide which is going on in Gaza, we're now called Hamas apologists. So we're not simply said, oh, actually, I disagree with you, and I'm going to argue why. We are simply subject to this process of dehumanization. So to go back to your kind of question, are we going to, are humans going to fight back against this? I hope we do. But just as important as these new apparatuses of biopower is the ideologies of compliance. Once those apparatuses of biopower are in place, ideology is no longer going to be as important. It doesn't matter whether I agree with the tenets of environmental fundamentalism and think I shouldn't be able to drive my car more than I want to because it will be turned off. It doesn't matter whether I think I should be free to eat meat or I should be free to walk around, uh, you know, my country without someone saying, well, how many, how many, how much distance have you covered this day? It doesn't matter whether I think I should have every aspect of my life um, surveyed by digital identity. Once those are in place, my opinions aren't going to matter as an individual. Yeah. And that's why these ideologies of compliance are very, very important. But I think we are moving, as I said, we're moving into a post-political environment. I also think we're moving into a post-ideological one. Yeah, uh, it is anti-human fundamentally, and that brings up the question: who, who fundamentally is anti-human? Because I'm sure for people in power, they don't expect to be compromised in this way. No, I think <laughs> I think it's, you know, there's lots of names for what's going on. In my first books, I called it the global biosecurity state. Now I'm taking up their own term of, of stakeholder capitalism. But hmm. some people have referred to this as a kind of feudal capitalism. Yeah. Um, you know, the other day I was watching uh, someone speaking at um, the World Economic Forum, I think it was. I'm not sure which meeting it was. 
And they were talking about travel. And they said, you know, in the future, travel will be open to people of means. I love these kind of uh, euphemisms. <laughs> they <You mean, laughs> the Private <rich>. jets. <laughs> the people with private jets, the people who fly into Davos to talk about how we should stop consuming so much energy. Um, mm. And he said, but those without means, or perhaps without means, which I guess means the rest of us, will be able to travel in a virtual reality. So oh, here that. we go. AI is, headsets. Yeah. 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 So it's very, very clear that... It's going to be a very, very divided society, very much along feudal grounds, I think, with the, um, uh, you know, a kind of, they like to refer to them as the the global elite. I like to refer to them by the good old terms, the ruling class. Yeah. And the rest of us is going to be, you know, one of the things that stakeholder capitalism is also doing is it's it's kind of, it's it's digging out the middle classes, the middle class, which is kind of, I mean, depends, but... A successful capitalist society, anyway, has a strong middle class. Mm. It's got to work that way. Um, at the moment, the middle class is being immiserated, and we're going into a kind of, it's being hollowed out, and we're having a kind of a separation between an immensely powerful ruling class, or elite, as they like to call themselves, and an increasingly immiserated masses. Mm. Um, and that's, I think that signifies a, a big change the proles. From this idea of progress that, yeah, the proles, yeah. I mean, we go, we're going back into 1984, aren't we? Yeah, the, the book and stuff. There's just going to be... manual. Yeah, yeah the pro, there's going to be the proles, there's going to be the administrative party members, um, and then there's going to be the party elite. You know, I th- I've been reading in 1984 over and over again over the last few years, and it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I had a read uh, about a year ago, and, and it is, and I'd read it before, but just to kind of line it up with how things are, it's even more chilling um it, it, uh, now you know this all sounds i'm going to use the e-word evil it, it's evil isn't it um um i'm not sure i've i'm not sure i've used that word it's got kind of religious connotations isn't no, it? No, well i'm just so trying I to think, think of what as dastardly you know yeah. uh mindset as possible i guess could be that you could use the but but it is because it i mean there's not much love in it yeah, there's absolutely no love at all. But then I don't think there's a lot, lot of love been going around for a long time either. Yeah. Yes, you could you could call it evil in the sense that it is a it's like an evil plan. Yeah, it's it's definitely a anti-human agenda. I think yeah. you know when you when you listen to people like I don't know if you know him Yuval Harari, who's the yes, Israeli. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's a, and he's a, he's a kind of a, he's a kind of a spokesman, isn't he, for the WEF? And he yeah. quite openly talks about. Hacking into humans and that you know, I think the other day he came up and said, in a hundred years, if not sooner, um, human beings are not going to exist. Yeah, I mean, I've heard him most, say that, and I think he's he right really, about ha- hacking. Um, as I yeah. understand it, the mRNA um, overwrites certain parts of DNA. That is hacking. Yeah, a human. It's already happened. Yeah, I mean, he he a few years ago because he's been he's been kind of courted by people like bill gates and barack obama and so on and so forth his books have been kind of he's so creepy i have to say if you creepy guy he's more than he's more than creepy man i think he, he's the Joseph goebbels of his day he oh, says yeah. things which are absolutely extraordinary and what's most extraordinary about them and there's all there's always weirdos all over the world but he's celebrated as some sort of visionary some sort of public intellectual that we should be looking to in admiration but he said a few years ago very deliberately he said in this new industrial revolution, which Klaus Schwab has called the fourth industrial revolution, when we're going into AI and you know these new technologies and so on, so so forth, he says the problem that it's going to bring about is the problem of what he calls useless mouths. 
Yeah, too uh, many that is people, to feed. Too many people um, and people who don't have any role to play when computers and uh, and robots have taken over all their functions. Now, that, that term itself is an explicitly Nazi reference. You know, the Nazis called people within the Third Reich who couldn't work because of some infirmity or whatever. They called them useless eaters. Yeah, they were yep. the first people that they subjected to the uh, the involuntary euthanasia program. Um, and this is, you know, this is an Israeli Jewish guy who's quite happy to use that kind of terminology. And he says quite openly, he says, the solution that we've got so far is drugs and computer games. Now, this was a few years ago. I think what we've got now are it's these new technologies of compliance. And one of them is the smartphone. You mm. know, people say to me, what can we do about this, Simon? And I'm saying, well, the first thing we can do is you can get rid of your smartphone. Because digital identity, a system of digital identity, it's and assist and the first central bank digital currency wallets are all going to go through our smartphones. Yeah, of course, yep. I don't have a smartphone, so I'm very aware. Well, I, I do, and you do, do you? And I'm in a real <laughs> quandary. It's not the first time I've uh, had to, you know, think this one through. I've still got it's right here next to me. Yeah, um, I know there are. You know, they've ways. only been in our lives for a very few years, and people are already absolutely addicted to them. I looked the other day. How many times people touch them just actually put their hands on it a day and it's every 22 seconds of a 16 hour day that's incredible that's that's not use that's addiction Um, you know i see young people in particular who've been brought up you know babies i saw a toddler the other day who had a smartphone i was like what does a toddler need a smartphone for but she had it plugged into a kind of earphones which was playing music um and you know they've given they become biotechnology they're not yet inserted into our body yeah but it's on the way yeah, yeah but can... it's getting there, and yeah. and the the psychological addiction to it is is absolute. Um, they are going to be the medium, the technological medium through which digital ID and central bank digital currency is going to be implemented. Hmm. Um, we've got to get rid of them. That's the first thing we should do, um, because they are going to become the the digital camp. Maybe we can talk about what that is. The digital camp in which they are planning, not merely wish, but planning to imprison us. Is at the moment, it's in our hands. Yeah. If everyone in the West or in the world got rid of their smartphone now, unfortunately, that's a hypothetical proposition. It would fall over. They got right? rid of it, it would, it would it fall would just, over. They, yeah. they would find new ways to do it, but initially that would that would work. So if you're serious, I'll say to your listeners here, people laugh at me when I say this, but I think what's laughable in a sense, what's striking is yes, it's a convenience. Of course, it's a convenience, and we've got used to it. But it's also, it's our bloody chains. You know, it's the yeah. chains in which we're going to be imprisoned. If we want to get rid of them, if we want to fight this digital camp, the first thing we need to do is get rid of your smartphone. Get a book, get an A to Z, get a map, learn <laughs> to read the newspaper, yeah. talk to people when you're on the on the train or something. Find replacements for it because it is the prison. It is the medium of the prison in which they want to they want to uh, incarcerate us. When you put it like that, Simon, I'm not holding up too much hope right now. <laughs> no, I don't hold too much weight. And I think that's an indication. You know, when I, I, I've done numerous talks in which I go through, you know, the last chapter of my book is called What is to be done? Why you should destroy your smartphone now. And when I give this talk and I show to people how the smartphone is being utilized, I come up with the statistics of our addiction. I show that every time we go into any public space and we log on, they are harvesting our data. Yep. And then I say, get rid of it. And people laugh at me. They're like, that's mad that's crazy um what i find crazy is that even knowing all this even the people who i've told about this who have worked it out themselves they are still not willing to give up that phone if we can't do that i do i do 
I do fear for human beings because the smartphone is replacing our humanity or it's becoming an adjunct to it. Wow. Okay. Really amazing chat. Um, the Great Reset Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capital is your latest book. Um, thank you so much for coming on to our radio station and explaining all that. We've got a lot to walk away and think about, though many of us have been thinking about these things already. I don't think people are going to throw away their smartphones anytime soon. And uh, they do seem to be uh, very responsive to messages of fear, which has them clinging to compliance. So that's there. Um, Boy, uh, (laughs) fancy this happening in our lifetime. Yeah. There is, there is one thing we can also do, and this is not simply because I'm a writer of books, and that is buy books. Yeah. Because another thing that's going to happen is they're going to have complete control over oh, the information oh. which is which is in the digital world. If you buy a book, nobody can censor it. Yeah. They can come and knock down your door and burn it, as they did in the 1930s, but they can't, they can't tell you, they can't censor words, they can't punish you for what you've read there, they can't put a stop on your bank account because they don't know what you've read there. I think we should be buying all the books we think we're going to read over the next 10 years because soon books will be outlawed. They'll be coming for printing presses and typewriters, Simon. The, the, the international, the, sorry, intergovernmental panel on climate change will inevitably say books are made from trees and are therefore. So get as many books as you can. And for your listeners, there's no better way to start than with (laughs) the great reset. (laughs) How's that for a plug? That's great. <laughs> Simon Elmer, thank you for coming on our radio station, and we'll keep an eye on all of that. And um, hopefully, you know, sometime in the future we can talk again. It'll be great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for lovely talking to you, Paul. Uh, keep fighting. I love the name Reality Check because reality is something which is being created around us at the moment. We've yeah. got to bring it back to the real world. Nice talking yeah. with you, mate. Nice talking with you. Thanks. Bye-bye. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.